Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome to the Good Grow Great podcast. I'm Talia Toha, and this is Six Degrees of Greatness. If you're new here, this is the segment where we talk and sit down with one, two, three different people from various different backgrounds, from people who are just starting out in their career and business, all the way to people who are 10 plus years into what they are already doing. And the key goal is really to learn from some of their successes and wins, some of their epic failures too, and really why certain things are working and why certain things are not. We talk about psychology, running a business, starting a business, living a life with purpose and meaning without really sacrificing the things that are important to you and many, many more. And so today, those are some of the topics that we want to touch on. But more specifically, I wanted to touch on how to have difficult conversations around worst case scenarios, right? In your business, if you're thinking, what if this, what if that other thing happened? What if they don't take it well? What if I don't get blah, 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 right? What should we do about worst case scenarios that can actually turn into reality, right? And what to do when it does turn into reality. And so specifically, we're going to touch on some really interesting examples, but also talking about things that a lot of times your customers and clients don't always want to talk about, aka things around money, right? Guilt and all of these things. And how can you expect the unexpected? And what are some ways that you can do this, not just with purpose, but also in a way that is sustainable, that's long lasting, that can still run your business and your career and everything, all without sacrificing the values that are important to you. So today, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about. Now today, I wanted to share with you Meredith Bissaker, and Meredith went from being a childhood friend of Grammy-winning Michael Bublé to surviving a bomb threat, to singing in a band, to being a certified money coach. And today she talks about hidden reasons people don't often talk about money and what that meant for business owners. And she's also touching upon preparing the unexpected, especially when she survived a real-life bomb threat. And so this is interesting. And uh, also, she's going to be touching on key lessons from knowing Michael and uh, Michael Bublé from when he grew up uh, in her neighborhood and what she remembered about Michael and why he became the successful uh, person that he is. And also, how to turn being a mom of children with disabilities to effective and purposeful work. And at the same time, we're also going to be sitting down with Amber Howard after 20 years in management and Amber took her love of nature in New Zealand all the way to Canada, all the while motorcycling, uh, motorcycle riding, and uh, now teaching at University of Toronto and sharing with others key lessons about her great uncle and how he wrote a book about being the British spy that Ian Fleming allegedly based 007 himself, James Bond. Um, and also, She's going to be touching on being in an accident with her brother on a farm and what she learned from that experience and ways that our relationship with money affects our results and quality of life. And so, so much to unpack, so many things that we can learn from. And if you haven't already, be sure to hit follow, subscribe, at or collect if you're on Pandora. Grow Solvers, let's do this.
welcome you guys to the podcast. I'm so excited that both of you guys here. We have Meredith and Amber, of course. Now, before we dive into the amazing things that each of them are doing in their life and their business and in careers, uh, I actually wanted to start with you, Meredith. And you mentioned that you love, uh, you used to sing in a rock cover band. Is that right? Or... Well, we're on hiatus right now, thanks to COVID. Uh, we'll pick that up as soon as we can. But yeah, for about four or five years, I've been singing in cover, rock cover bands and just totally unexpected and so fun. What, uh, who do you cover? What kind of, uh, what bands do you cover? Uh, mostly pop and rock in my current band. Songs that the women will dance to is always the, so if I dance to it, they know that it's a song that we can play. I see. Nice. Now, is it you've always played? You've always played music when since you were little, or is this just a recent uh, discovery? Yeah, I definitely had the piano lessons when I was younger. Uh, when I stopped practicing, my mom said, "Forget it. I'm not going to keep paying for these lessons if you're not practicing." Did the band and played different instruments in school band, uh, and then it had was about twenty years uh, until I decided to join a band that my husband was in. And then the rest is history. I, I never thought I would sing. I didn't think I could sing. And I can. So, so he got you. Yeah. Into it. This is his fault. Does he is it is his yeah. genre also rock and pop rock? Or is he? he yeah, he his band uh, plays the music I love playing, which is classic rock. Uh, that's my favorite. Uh, but I do know that if we want to be a band that plays in bars <laughs> that's our aspiration <laughs> then it has to be we have to throw some of that pop and more modern rock in there too which is fine yeah yeah and I've heard stories about how like you know I don't know if you've been doing this I'm, I know with everything locking down and everything it's, it's not been the same but in the past I think even p- people playing gigs out there and just kind of with the noise and people eating you know it just becomes kind of like a beast of its own like you're not even just playing music there's like this whole other dynamic happening which is you know people are throwing chicken wings at you like <laughs> Oh my goodness, this is <laughs> so. I hope that hasn't been your case, but uh, I love no. you know, anybody with any entrepreneurs I, I find who have something else that they love doing. I think that's not just cool, it's it's also helpful, right? I here in the podcast and definitely with my students as well at Good Grow Great, we always talk about how to have how to have not just a balance but how to even up level what you're doing the work that you're doing with this other thing that brings you joy right so in your Mm -hmm. case it's music which is fun and this gets you of course this meaningful time with your husband it sounds like now amber though you you took a different route your whole thing is uh motorcycling which is i think super uh, interesting. Now, of course, in America, land of the sprawl, we have so many great roads and uh, great places to go to. Was there ever a place uh, where you go, this is the most amazing place that I've I've been to when you're out in your rides? Yeah, it's Forks of the Credit up in uh, just north of Brampton in uh, near Toronto, wow. uh, for those of you that are familiar. And it's just the most beautiful beautiful road that goes along the Credit Valley River. Uh, and I remember the first time I, I drove that before, and it's got some pretty neat twists and turns in it. I remember the first time I drove that with my car, my kids and I used to go up there. There's also a place near there 
called the Badlands, which just looks like you stepped out into Mars. It's all like the the dirt. It's like all of these perfectly formed hills and the dirt is all red. It looks like you're on another planet. And I remember the first time driving that and being like, oh, this would be so much fun on a motorcycle. And you see like tons of people drive up there and go up there to ride their motorcycles. There's a nice little uh, town near there, Tottenham, and it's got an ice cream shop and yeah, you see, yeah, it's beautiful. I wanted to ride motorcycles for 20 years. It was like a, a passion of mine, something that um, just, I don't know, it represents freedom to me. Yeah, I was like late to getting my driver's license because I lived downtown Toronto for a long time and had my family when I was quite young, so I didn't need to drive. And then we moved out to the suburbs and I was like, wow, okay. And so dri- driving in general is like freedom. It's like you can get in your car, get on the back of the motorcycle and kind of go anywhere. So. Yeah, this is I mean, I think it's so true what you're saying is that even though the the I think the landscape is the same. What's interesting is that when you're on a car, it's not the same as when you're on a bike, right? Because the experience is different. You've got the wind whooshing through, you know, and I know you're like probably wearing jacket and your helmet on, hopefully. Uh, yes. And uh, and but it's just a totally different experience. You hear the engine revving up. Right. And you have total control. Right. Which is kind of interesting. And um, and I think this is kind of almost analogous to even just the things that you're we're doing. Meredith is in accounting, right? And uh, Amber, you have this amazing business as well. And it's just kind of like one of those things that w- when you realize that you can actually shift and do things differently, even though it's the same thing, like everything changed, right? Everything uh, is is changed. now. Do you still go out riding? I know that with the lockdown, maybe things are a little bit different, but yeah, no. I, well, the bike's away for the winter winter but because it's yeah. there's snow up here uh, i'm not sure where you uh, ladies are located but where i am the white stuff is on the ground and so but it's funny it like starts to even the decisions you make about where you want to live and stuff you know it's like you want to be somewhere where you can get out and you it's not like for me about riding on highways and stuff like that it's more that experience of getting on the bike at the end of the day and just mm. being um with yourself. Yeah. Which is new for me because I think I spent a lot of my life like being around people and I would have been classed as an extrovert. So the older I've gotten, I found it um, time with myself and, you know, with my own thoughts and reflection uh, more and more valuable. Yeah. And it is very different. You're exposed in a way. There is that sense of control, but you're also very exposed. And I remember when I did my driving course, which I recommend anyone who wants to get a motor, it really like demystifies it. It takes the, like a lot of the risk. You feel very safe when you're learning, but in the in-class portion, the instructor was like, you're going to get into an accident. It's not, you're going to like, it's not a matter of if it's going to happen. And and it doesn't mean like a horrible accident, but you're going to drop your bike. Something's going to happen. Like if you just take that out of your, and I had this moment of like, I'm a mom, I have these kids. Should I be doing this? And I was like, that I'll be safe. Yeah. Well, and I think it's also living and taking ownership of, you know what, this is something that I love, despite even some of the risks, right? And I think everybody who goes into business or, or even try to advance their career, if they're in a job, whatever it is that they're doing, there are risks to that, right? And I love that you're going, okay, you know what, it, it outweighs all of the other things that 
may or may not be, um, you know, good with me, but I prefer, this is something that I need to and love to protect, right? Which is, I think, so, so important. Now, um, you know, speaking of, you know, protecting something that's important and maybe even uh, secretive, Amber, you have um, an amazing connection to Hector C. Bywater, who a lot of people have said is, is a James Bond of his own time. And um, he wrote uh, a book, and I'm just going to read to um, read to the audience here what what his book was on Amazon or on Wikipedia, it's about uh, intelligence, right? In, in the world of espionage, essentially, is uh, his book was uh, Strange Intelligence. So he was involved in uh, previous wars, of course. And so he, it, which I thought was interesting. Did you discover this link just recently? Or has that always, has, has that always lived in your family uh, for generations? Or somebody told you about it? Be like, hey, yeah, we're related to Bywater. Uh, so I think at, at some point in time, my dad would have told me and but it wasn't until a few years back that I got curious and and wanted to to know more about him and so I googled him and I was like I found this article that was written about him so he was a he was recruited to the British spy service by Mansfield Cumming the original creator of MI6 and he wrote a book in the 1920s he was fascinated probably if you were to like aspergian like like just obsessed with the naval anything to do with the navy and he wrote a book he he saw the treaties that were being signed between the japanese and the americans uh like during um that time and he kept trying to draw attention and it's funny his intention was good, he was try- but the outcome was not so great. So he was trying to draw attention to what he saw was an impending march to war between the Japanese and the Americans. So he wrote this work of fiction. He wrote a- an essay and Churchill came out against it and said there'd never be a war with the Japanese. So he wrote this work of fiction called The Great Pacific War in the 1920s. And like the island hopping campaign, all of it, like basically wrote the blueprint for the war between the Japanese and the Americans. And it was all of, at the time, a work of fiction. It was meant to draw attention. And the Japanese, he met Yamamoto and Yamamoto, they, they basically took his book and turned it into the blueprints. So in the book, he wrote about a bombing it. And in the Philippines, they bombed Pearl Harbor. But he was predicting the use of technology uh, aircraft that were just in their infancy in the 1920s. And after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the Amer- it's proposed that the Americans used his strategies in that book as their playbook with how to respond. So it's and yeah, it's fascinating. And, and at the same time, I, and, you know, I think it's a good lesson on sometimes we, you know, our actions have unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is interesting. I'm glad you brought that up because I think particularly now in the world where everything is is not just recorded but out there and it lives on, right? And his intentions was one thing and then somehow interestingly other people who read it found the work then developed it into this other uh other thing, right? Which is kind of I think it's so interesting particularly when 
And I think particularly in the world of business, you do see this as well, where, you know, you do one thing and then the other person takes it as another thing. And, you know, so it's just kind of, uh, I don't know, I don't, I don't think people should be paralyzed by putting out good work, but I think having that uh, understanding and acceptance that, you know what, it, it will be what it will be, you know, and, and the world might look at it differently, but my, this was my intention, which was so interesting that you had brought that up. So, uh, you know, it's, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, when I teach people change management, one of the things I say is that, you know, you judge yourself by your intentions, other people judge you by your actions. And and I think that's really important to keep in mind. Like, again, I agree a hundred percent not to be paralyzed, but to remember that when you're acting, right. When you're out in the world, when you're putting things out on social media, when you're communicating anything with anyone, like that to be congruent, to make sure that the actions you're taking are aligned with who you say you are and, and how you leave people, you know, how you leave people is so important. Right. And I think leadership, to your point, it, you know, it doesn't mean that you already have to have a place of authority, right? You just kind of realize that, oh, you know what, this does have uh, some kind of cause, whether that's small or big, and, uh, and whether that's immediate or in the future, whether that's just for me and my kids or family or husband, wife, whatever, partner or for the clients and all these other people as well. And I think speaking of intentions that uh, can actually be misconstrued and misconstrued into something else, Meredith, you had mentioned before we, uh, before we rolled that, you know, uh, or you knew Michael Buble, you grew up with him. Is that correct? I, I did. I feel a bit like I'm name dropping and I don't mean to, but it, it, it's, a fun, my kids are always impressed by it. I'll tell you that. <laughs> it gets brownie points with the kids. <laughs> yeah. And I think what's interesting about his work, and I want to touch on this as well, because of course, our podcast focuses on just uh, the, you know, finding ways to grow right beyond our obstacles and whether that's mm-hmm. in our career or business. Mm-hmm. Now with Michael, what I really appreciate about his road is that it's, it seems slightly unconventional. A, his voice sounds really different, you know, and uh, then all the ones that you can hear out there and music is still industry, right? Even though it's mm-hmm. a creative uh, pursuit. And um, has he always been aware of that gift that he has? Or did you find, of course, he was a kid. We can't expect him to have like the maturity of 20, uh, whatever, you know, 27 year old at that time or 30 or whatever. But Mm -hmm. uh, what do you remember about Michael that maybe stood out that you're going like, oh, that that explains why he's now, you know, such a success. Sure. Yeah. And it certainly wasn't a surprise when we started hearing that he was playing at clubs in Vancouver and gain a bit of a name for himself. Uh, the fact that he was a performer was not a surprise. The fact that he was a singer wasn't so much of a surprise either. Um, when, he, we, when we were younger in elementary school, uh, he was definitely um, a performer in ways, a bit of a ham in class and, and every, the teachers loved him and everybody really, he was just a really nice guy and had lots of fun. And just before um, we went to school up until the point of grade 10, and then I moved schools in that year of grade 10, there was an improvisation lunchtime event or a, a talent event. I don't know what it was, but he got up and he sang 
and we were all blown away. And it was that um, beautiful jazz voice, which is, like you said, is so unique because it was all like the 80s. It's all the hair band, cover bands and everything going yeah. up there or rap or hip hop. So uh, it wasn't a surprise when I heard he was singing in that genre. Um, and then, of course, he shares a story about how he grew up listening to jazz with his grandfather spent hours and hours and I really connect with that too because I love jazz because that's what my grandfather listened to as well and I always think of him when I hear that music so uh yeah it it it's always inspiring even now when I see you know commercials uh about shows he's doing or if he sometimes he used to be on um tv with Kelly Ripa in the morning it it really normalizes uh that whole fame and success situation you know like okay this is somebody who has we would say made it and he's kind of the same as me right we grew up in the same neighborhood and and he just went for it so yeah really inspiring yeah I love that you kind of you you highlighted that it actually normalizes a lot of the mis, you know mystified kind yeah. of uh, I think legends around legends because a lot of times we think oh they can do it because they're special like because they have this special other thing right and I think even if and I don't know you know Michael Bublé of course but I would presume that if he had been you know gifted with that thing and then when he's at a young age it wasn't developed it wasn't kind of harnessed right and it wasn't really uh put into a place where he can channel it and develop it he probably wouldn't be the guy that he is right now no his parents have i I think you can give them major credit for supporting that um he i I don't want to talk too much about his family but i do remember that there were other family members who were encouraged to move into various areas of um, performance as well and uh and in fact his um his parents grew up with in the same neighborhood as my parents. So there's a bit of this, this history where we, where we live. And I I just know that they were entrepreneurial. They encouraged their kids, I think, to follow their passion, recognized where those talents were and, and they were fortunate enough. This is a big thing, especially now as a parent, I realize they were fortunate enough to support, to be able to support that because not every parent can, you know, do the things that you need to do to, enhance those talents when you have children right and so kind of that balance of finding okay we can do these sets of things and okay michael let's let's see if you you know you want to participate and get involved in this i think this is so true and i was just actually listening uh to an interview with jerry seinfeld of course a great comedian and um in the business of comedy And the way what's interesting was that he kind of put this in this analogy is that you're given a gift and that gift is like a horse or a stallion and you're born with it and you have you have the response. We all have the responsibility to learn how to write it. Mm. And if we don't learn how to write it, we'll fall off. It'll die. The horse, the stallion might die. Right. But at if you learn how to write it, though, you become, of course, this amazing, fastest, just most beautiful uh, work, you know, that you can then share to other people. And it's such a gift to, um, you know, to other people, which I think is really a, a great analogy. And I think that's a great reminder, I think, for everyone who's listening. Now, 
you talk about growing up in Canada, Meredith, of course, I'm here in the U.S. Amber, you grew up in New Zealand, you said, right? Is that correct? Yeah, I was born in New Zealand, a little town called Hokitika, which is also called the cool town. I think if you go to their website, they didn't like labeled themselves the cool little town. Uh, it's on the west coast of the South Islands, for those of you who might be familiar, kind of on the other side of the country from Christchurch. Um, yeah, just up the coast from Delford Sound and Milford Sound. So nice. I came and to so- Canada when I was 10. Okay, cool. So now Which you, is- you, you moved to Canada when you were 10. And then before that, though, you were New Zealander all the way. Yeah, I lived there for the first 10 years of my life. But neither of my parents were born there. My mom's Canadian. So she went to travel the world when she was 18 and ended up in New Zealand for, for a time. And my father was born in Britain. He, uh, my grandfather was in the Royal British Navy and got posted to New Zealand when my dad was four. So, and I've been here ever since and with plans to return. Though it's funny, the older you get, I don't know if it's the ocean. Uh, Mer- well, you're on the, the West Coast, Meredith, yeah. so you can appreciate this. But people from Ontario, like landlocked Canadians, have this thing about lakes and lakes are amazing. There's nothing like waking up at the cottage on a lake in the morning with the loons and and with your coffee and going down to the dock. It really is beautiful. But those of us who have had the privilege of living near an ocean know that an ocean and a lake just, they're not the same thing. (laughs) And I feel called to the, it just, I I miss home. Yeah. Well, and this is so true because I can relate to that. Amber is, is, you know, I grew up in the tropics all the way halfway around the world in Indonesia. And you're absolutely right. I mean, all the time here now, of course, living in the U S we go to lakes every now and then it's just not the there's something about i don't know if it's like the the wind and the waves that probably came from you know miles and miles away halfway around the world i don't know what it is but it really isn't the same and so what i am curious though because whenever people come on the podcast and they were raised even at the early age in a different part of the world they always tend to have this different set of not just values, but approach to definitely looking at their work, right? Like they kind of look mm-hmm. at it from a different perspective almost, I think. And, and in the previous conversation that I just had with somebody else, uh, they, were, uh, they were comparing the European way versus the American way, which is a little bit more sort of mavericky, you know, individualized, right? Just go going for it, lone wolf, which is none of them are good or bad or wrong or right. They all have pros and cons versus the European who's like a little, Europeans are a lot more kind of community oriented, a lot more like, oh, this is a team, team kind of effort, right? What was the, uh, I guess, the environment surrounding business and entrepreneurship and, and people's approach to work in New Zealand, if you, if you remembered? I know you, you were not even 10, but what, what do you remember from growing up there? I don't know that I remember a lot about the, I mean, a lot of family members were in business for themselves and I I would have to go and look, Um, you know, New Zealand has that really unique thing. It's, it's an Island in the middle of the nowhere. Uh, It's like, I think it's a five hour flight to Australia. Like you look on a map and you think they're closed, but, and really the country is so diverse. The top part, the North Island, it's like one of some of the warmest places in the world. And then they're launching all of the expeditions to Antarctica from Christchurch. It's like very different. And it's this, a very strong British culture, I would say, probably even. And But this amazing 
So the Maori people of New Zealand, the, the Pacific Islanders that were there before the British arrived, it's a very different relationship. So Maori and, and English, it's it's bilingual and fully bilingual, not just like sometimes I think in Canada we say French is a second language, but it's not like really immersed in the culture. I'd say the majority of New Zealanders can speak basic Maori. It's just become part. And um, I yeah, they've had challenges over time, of course, like people learning to live and cohabitate together. Uh, but I, I, I think there's a real, and our prime minister, Jacinta, you know, there's just a real appreciation and, and um, for Maori culture, which is just beautiful. And so there is a, a, a real emphasis on community and, and connectedness. And I think that was ingrained in me as a small child being there. Um, Canada, I, I think it's a little bit different. We're, we're very nice. We're very cordial, but I, there's a, there's a very strong sense. I mean, just look at, I mean, not to bring necessarily the whole conversation about COVID, but New Zealand was able to do what New Zealand was able to do because the country was willing to go on lockdown and they, they got, people didn't like it. And I can tell you, you know, a lot of my family members didn't like it but they got that it was about something bigger than themselves. And I think when you're a small country of 3 million in the middle of nowhere, you kind of have to learn to rely on one another and take care of each other. Right. And it's almost like, I think you kind of summed it up really beautifully, a little country in the middle of nowhere, which I think is, is uh, really important to kind of remember because you are, I mean, I don't know what the, the ocean conditions, oceanic conditions are there, but you do kind of hear about, you know, places. I have a friend who's from Mauritius, and she explained how she grew up exactly the same way as you would have, that there are all these different cultures, but everybody kind of, it, it's, uh, it's almost like this equal understanding of, yes, there's just all these differences, and we all appreciate, use, and learn all of it, you know, and, um, and she speaks French and all these other things as well. So it's really cool to kind of see how different people do different things and how that then translates into uh, into our work, right? Now, uh, Meredith, I am kind of interested uh, because, you know, speaking about being in it together, you had mentioned once that uh, you had gone through a bank robbery. Were you working in the bank or what was the story there? Well, which bank robbery do you want to talk oh, about? There's more than one. Oh, wow. Uh, I think personally, I've been through four or five. Most of them I didn't know because I was, I, I usually worked in administration. So I was in what we called the back room, manage the cash and, you know, other admin duties. But I was uh, in, yeah, I did experience quite a bad robbery wow. right before Christmas. And that, that was not... Yeah, that was not pleasant. But what now was, I have a story. Yeah, what was that like? <laughs> like, which one do you think stood out um, to you the most? Yeah, well, this one, this one definitely stood out the most. Uh, the other ones, they were usually note passers, and so someone would come to me after they'd either ask for the die pack or they'd let me know, and then I would. It, it, luckily, I wouldn't be the one who was robbed, so I could come to the front, lock the door, do like go through everything that we were trained to do, and be. And I was calm. So that was great. But this one, this fellow had been robbing various branches. And this particular year was really bad for robberies as well. And we knew that this fellow had just robbed another branch in the city we were working at. So we were kind of the police were like, you might just just keep an eye out for him. Our bank stays open late. So uh, I, I'll never forget it. Our manager was sitting. It was 
so slow and our manager was sitting at a chair in the front and he says, here he comes. And the man came in and he said to the security card, a guard, I have a bomb, don't move, had his hand in his pocket. And all I remember him saying is, I don't want, well, it was swearing. I will not swear right now, but I don't want to do it, uh, but I'll kill you. And he just kept repeating that. So we all just, there were three of us and we all just went into auto mode, did what we had to do. Uh, I think he knew not to ask for the die pack, gave him his cash. So for people who don't know what a die pack is, can you explain? Oh yeah, absolutely. So a die pack, it it looks like a a wad of cash. And when someone, and I I mean, it's not a secret because a lot of, uh, I think, because robbers learned to write notes that said, don't pass me the die pack. Um, and, And when uh, there was a little sensor at the front door. So when um, the bank robbers would leave, the die pack would explode and they'd be covered in uh, ink. And so if they were caught by the police, they'd have this telltale sign. I don't even know if they use them anymore. It's been it's been a, probably a good 20 years since I've worked in branches now. But that was, yeah, that was that was a really traumatic one. Not, wow. not great. And they walked out, he walked out and everyone was safe. Nobody got hurt. We were all fine. I don't, often the police will come back and tell us what they would find out. They tell us if they caught them uh, and they would tell us if they actually had a firearm. I think in that same year, a friend's brother was actually shot at at a nearby branch just a block down. So we, our fear, uh, firearms are not a big thing in Canada. <laughs> so our fear of, of, you know, someone actually using a firearm in a branch was super heightened. And I think that's what made that even more traumatic than, than it could have been. Right. When, well, what I'm most interested from this kind of experience that you had shared is actually kind of this decision-making process that's mm-hmm. happening live, mm-hmm. right? As the mm-hmm. thing itself unfolds. And uh, I mean, in the podcast here, we talk about decision-making a lot because it is important when you find yourself in that fork in the road, right? Whether there's, there's two or three different forks, who knows? Mm-hmm. And you're at the moment that can really lead you sideways or forward or backwards, that's really so just kind of hearing you go through the thought process of okay we've all been trained we all number two stay calm right and number three just kind of knowing and expecting the unexpected right totally. even what somebody your coworker said oh he's coming yeah yeah and i luckily and and I mean, I think this is a big thing in all banks, at least in Canada, you're just trained over and over and over. A manager will come up and do a, a fake note passing situation. So everyone has to go right into, into mode. So, um, and because we for coworkers stayed calm, that kept the situation calm. The person who lost it was the security guard. So after the security guard, or after the robber left, the security guard said, He's, he's put a bomb on the door. Oh my God, I can hear it ticking. Mm. And there was no bomb. But because the, the robber planted that in the security guard's mind, she thought she heard it. And that, I think that that was really the, the cherry on the top, you know, point. like that's yeah. what really sent us into like, someone's got to call the cops, but is there, is there really a bomb on the door? Luckily there were no cl- uh, customers. So it made it easier just to lock everything up and just, stay back from 
from yeah, there. I think that is so curious that the security guard, who's the one guy who mm-hmm. would think to be mm-hmm. like the leader in staying calm, going mm-hmm. through all of the training and process, is the one who's mm-hmm. like, okay, I and I wonder, and of course, this is not, of course, we're we're appreciative of all security Absolutely. guards, but I think one thing that that I learned from this experience that you had just shared is that sometimes people who are in the position of leadership, however that look like there are so many things going on in their mind that we don't know, right? A lot of times like people look to business leaders and be like, oh, they made a bad business decision or they made a decision to lay off all these other people. That's not, that's not good. And, and then we kind of, um, we kind of put around a persona of they have to know everything, uh, everything about what to do. And they themselves take that on themselves. And that kind of creates that stress probably that your security guard is experiencing and then also emoting, because there is kind of this weird unsaid dynamic of, oh, because I'm a leader, I have to like, this is everyone's safety now. You Absolutely. Know? Yeah, you're probably bang on with that. And and it also makes me wonder about the training that they would have received as well. So uh, looking back on that, I certainly don't, like you said, I'm not criticizing that person. In fact, there's a lot of compassion now that I'm older thinking, did she have the right um, training? What, what was triggered in, in that guard that she like, just went into this, this mode. And it was probably, uh, I mean, I, I wonder how she felt after, you know, once everything calmed down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, we're certainly seeing this in COVID with our political leaders and, and business leaders where we it's so, it's so easy to criticize decisions that are being made right now, you know, uh, on, on relief spending or, or whatever. And we, they have to think like that. They have yeah. to, and there's you know. a lot going on, right? And I think yeah. this is true even at, uh, at a, a kind of a day-to-day level. I know a lot yeah. of the students and, and audience who's listening, they're always like, oh, how do I negotiate my contract, get a client and so forth. I think one thing that we all need to remember is that the other person who you're speaking with or not speaking with, you know, maybe virtually or whatever, they always have these other, we assume that their condition is X, but it's actually X, Y, Z. There's all of these things yeah. surrounding it. And unless we kind of really ask them the right questions or really open up the conversation, it's kind of hard to understand exactly what's going on and how we can help them really, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this is this is so interesting to, to look at decision-making from the perspective of, okay, let's give them, a, you know, just a moment of grace and just kind of understand where are they going? Where are they coming from? Now, speaking of decision-making and panic, uh, Amber, you mentioned, now this is kind of at a different scale, of course, when you were younger, you on your motorbike you had a you drove it sounds like you rode with your brother were you riding it or or were you kind of in the passenger oh no uh, i was driving the motorcycle okay and no. so what, <laughs> it was like a dirt bike okay walk us through what happened there like how did you go from point x to lose control we're gonna hit almost hit a cow <laughs> oh no there were no cows just the milking shed so i was like <laughs> My brother was teaching me how to ride the dirt bike. We lived on a dairy farm. It was like one of the last places we lived in New Zealand in uh, the Bay of Plenty in the North Island before we moved to Canada. And Chris was being a great older brother, you know, letting his little sister have experiences. So I was in the front of the dirt bike and he was on the back and there was the milking truck, you know, that would come and pick up the milk each day. And there was the milking shed and there was a gap in between. And I was, you know, trying to impress my brother thinking I had it handled. And I was like, oh, I can make it. And of course, 
either my aim wasn't very good or the gap wasn't as big as I thought it was or whatever happened. I drove us straight into the side of the milk shed. And uh, that was the last time Chris ever got on a motorcycle with me. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, that was no, such a great place this. to live that farm though. We went to school on the farm. It was like, yeah, it was really idyllic passion yeah. fruit trees. And it was beautiful. Yeah. If you could ever, I recommend if you're ever going to go to New Zealand to go, if it's a once in a lifetime trip, go for at least a month. Cause there's the just so much, yeah. so I've much heard, to see and do. I've heard this about New Zealand. It's like, and definitely in my bucket list for sure. Now I am curious though, cause when you destroyed or maybe just put a dent on the, on the shed, what was the conversation with mom and dad afterwards? Was there like, uh, or were you kind of the favorite of the family where they're go- then they're going, oh, you know what? That's fine. It's Amber. And then Chris gets all the heat. <laughs> I don't actually remember, you know, I mean, my mom was, my mom's always been hugely supportive. I was raised by a single mom uh, from the time I was little and she, uh, she worked really hard. I'm sure there was some discipline, but it was always very from a place of love. You know, one of the things that my personal development, like a lot of conversations about being, you know, and who you're being. And I think as a parent or anyone, like people, people don't necessarily experience your words so much as who you're being when you deliver them. So I, what I can say about my mom is no matter what the discipline or what there was always like, it was always coming from a place of love. Mm, and I so, think I love that that you used your mom for this example because I think this is so true when we see people you know share bad news even to us right and we can kind of receive it if if it comes from again that place of good intention and purposeful intention versus you're doing something bad and this is why you know mm-hmm. which of course a lot of parents can do that and a lot of business owners leaders right even CEOs do that to their employees and it's always kind of creates this maybe not at the time but long term this kind of just unsaid tension that doesn't really help anybody you know and it actually is a disservice to them right yeah, it's interesting you say that because I was like when you and Meredith were talking about that bank robber from the work I do with training and developing people in personal resilience, like when we're triggered or activated, which can happen when when we receive criticism in a certain way, like when it occurs for us, like the criticism is like um, malicious or, you, you know, not a contribution like are we like that ba- like security guard like likely they they got triggered or activated they're you know they're amygdala they're having an amygdala response and when we're in our sympathetic nervous system we don't have access to any of our tools like our mental tools our emotional tools to be able to respond and deal with from that place and so literally our subconscious is just running the show and uh, it's so important, I think. And what I could really hear in what you were saying, Meredith, is how calm you all were. Like you had the training and that gave you the confidence, like that knowing, right? For me, confidence is about knowing, like that you knew you knew what there was to do and how to handle it. And so then you're able to to respond with all of the various tools versus kind of responding from that flight, fright, freeze response. Uh, and so I think that as leaders, and I, I teach a leadership course at the University of Toronto, and I, I said to my students just recently, like, we're all leaders. We can all, like, leadership doesn't necessarily, to me anyway, come from a title. It's, it, it's ways of being and acting. And, and as leaders, I think we have a real opportunity to leave other people expanded and, and bigger than we found them. 
And then, and you can deliver really, you know, authentic, you can be really authentic with people. You can be really straight and authentic with people, but if it's coming from a place of contribution and love, then they can hear your straightness differently than if you were coming from like, there's something wrong with you and I'm trying to fix you or something like that. Yeah. And I think you, I love that you highlighted that leadership. Anyone can, and if willing, should lead the other person next to you, right? I think a lot of people have this idea that, oh, if I lead, it has to be this like, you know, 20 other people or 200 other people. That's not true. Like if, it, if it's just even two people next to you, that's being a leader, right? Or even just one person, like you're helping somebody else uh, across or above or uh, below, like whatever your, your hierarchy in, in the, you know, in the, in institution or organization it is that's leadership is just helping other people uh you know rise beyond their their challenges and and obstacles which i think is so i think important in any domains right and amber in business uh meredith you're in accounting i think this is also true like a lot of people who are like looking at whatever their taxes you know and they're kind of like oh my gosh this is a lot of Mm -hmm. a lot of work i don't know what to do right like sometimes it just kind of understanding that our work is more than just the technical aspect of it mm-hmm. and more in that kind of the personal uh, relationship of, of it all. Right. So do you have, yeah. uh, for instance, like a, um, a, an instance when, when you remember that maybe a client is having a, a difficult time or whatever and how you approach it from that personal standpoint? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm going through that right now and not to get, I don't want to get any details about the client, but I was, having this conversation with a a woman I walk with every morning, just remembering. So it's easier for me to stand back and just, even if I'm not asking the client questions, I'm asking myself questions. If I'm feeling a little bit like I really need to get this information so I can get the compliance piece done. Hold on a second. What's going on? This isn't sure it's about me, but it's not really so chill, relax, (laughs) and, and just approach the conversation in a way that's going to nurture them as well as their they're going through this and money is such a, a touchy taboo subject. And um, I think that that's what makes uh, my work with my clients really successful is that they can just say, listen, you've been asking me to get this to you for three months and I haven't, can we just sit down and I'll do it with you. And then I can ask you questions right now. I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. let, let's just do it. If that's what you need. And it's not going to like take tons yeah, of my it's time. Interesting. It's interesting that you mentioned that, that money, I think a lot of people have difficulty discussing things around money, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, there are other topics as well. And people, I know people who I've interviewed who are in the, maybe the dating space, right? Or relationship yeah. space. That's like, but then at the same time, as the expert, as a leader, it's very difficult to help them if you if you don't help them first to open up on those things, right? So yeah. I love that you're going, okay, and having this encouraging open arms and be like, let's sit down, you know, and you can kind of, you know, close whatever, open whatever, and we'll, you know, we'll get through the process together. And and most people I would find don't necessarily share their discomfort, right? Like they're, they would have it in their mind, like, oh, I don't want to talk about money. I know that it's important, but I don't want to talk about it. But at the same time, it's almost like as a business owner, right, as the person who's leading 
the uh, the flock, you're kind of you're you're responsible also for their well being, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like being. I think Brian Tracy talks about this a lot, where your role is almost like a doctor, right? You come in and you you help them through, and you do take some leadership in. Well, that's not really the best way to go about it. This is perhaps the better diagnosis and better, you know, whatever it is, right? So mm-hmm. I love that you're doing that with with even accounting, right? Like all of these things like money. And I think we were talking about um, in, uh, in another uh, episode, uh, whether money does buy happiness. I think this is a concept that a lot of people are asking, right? And I think particularly now, because they're, they're you know, working from home, and they're going, oh, you know what? I don't know, like I have all of these things, can't do anything about it. And then they look at their work slightly differently. And um, I think there's a couple of schools of thought, right, where like one person, one group says, well, yeah, it does, of course, it buys happiness. And there's another uh, end of the spectrum who goes, no, absolutely not. And there's uh, there a sprinkling, a smattering <laughs> across the <laughs> spectrum who's like, well, it's it depends on how you look at money. Like, do you look at it from the perspective of, OK, is is this something that will just give us joy for this time being, but it's not the be an, an, an end all Right. And then other people tie it into fulfillment and happiness and be like, oh, it's really about, you know, moments of joy. And we're not we shouldn't be relying on money to give us a lifetime of happiness. Right. What's your what's your take on on any of this, Meredith? Mm-hmm. Like having, having been in that space, what are some of your takes on this? Yeah, I think you bring up so many great points in, in what you just said. Uh, I'll address that in two ways. Number one, we most certainly need money in, in our culture and society to help us feel secure, like, or not even help us feel secure, but to secure our safety, to make sure that we have food and that we have the shelter we need and, uh, you know, access to, to what we need to be healthy and maintain a certain quality of life. For sure. So um, to just say money doesn't buy happiness, I think is an insult to those who are literally struggling financially. Uh, on the flip side, if we are, if we think that money is going to fulfill us overall through life, uh, I think we run into um, the possibility that we're going to feel unfulfilled when we hit that that financial goal. And tying those financial goals um, to the work we do, I think will help increase that fulfillment. So as a money coach, I'm not here to say you absolutely have to retire or save for retirement. You absolutely have to buy a house. You absolutely have to do this because every client is different. So when they, they come to the table with me, they I ask them what their goals are. And there might be that, um, I, I love, love what Amber said, you know, provide like contributing with love. I may contribute to the conversation. If a client has told me, something and then their goals are not like they're completely dissonant with with what they're telling me that's when I'm going to make a loving contribution or an observation reflect things back but uh, overall if we can allow people to know and recognize what matters to them then they can choose their financial goals like it's terrible when someone's when, you know, if I said to you, oh, I really want to retire or save from my retirement. And you said, no, no, no. What you want to do is invest in property that that could be, I mean, I think that's a great idea personally, but that could be insulting to me because you haven't sat down to ask me 
what, you know, that full situation is, which is exactly what you said a few minutes ago as well. We haven't, you know, what's going on with A, B, and C. Yeah, and I love that you tie in that in just independently, it's very difficult to, you know, create a life that's fulfilling just around money, of course, because it's a tool, right? It's mm-hmm. kind of like just saying that, oh, you know, uh, just reading uh, a book or just driving a car is is going to fulfill me because it's not really just about the car or the book or the food or the money. It's it's where you're going with the car. I think Simon Sinek used this as in one of his analogies is like money is almost like the fuel in the car. Yeah. It gets you to places and then the car itself has to go to a certain destination and that destination is determined by you. So yes, of course you need money to get to certain places and certain goals and all these things. And, um, and, uh, but at the same time, it's going to be pointless if you don't have that greater, greater vision in mind, which I think is, is important. Now we are kind of, I, I am kind of curious to hear your thought on this and Amber, you can chime in as well. Cause you're, uh, you know, your, your specialization of course is in business and you have like this amazing management experience as well. And uh, I am kind of curious because I think a lot of people, when they look at money, they of course have this long, like years and years of uh, built-in understanding, right? From their parents, from their uh, community, from what they grow, what they grew up with. Right. I think, What's interesting personally to me when I kind of when I was growing up, people never ever talk about money where I was growing up in Indonesia. Now, maybe I don't know. But back then, no one ever, you know, does. And interestingly, once I moved to the US, I noticed that as well. um, And this could be just the circles that I run, but they nobody ever talks about money. I mean, they would talk about, oh, this investment, oh, that, you know, like they would talk about it from like they would put a barrier and and have like this uh, detachment almost. Right. Um, So how can people and i let's bring it down to kind of a little bit more microscopically in let's just say a household right let's say that somebody wants to start a business and they have to share it with the, tell their spouse husband or wife whatever and they'd be like hey you know what i want to start this, this some, something on the side and then let's say that the partner is not as on board and be like oh but why and of course this is something that i've heard across, smattering across our audiences and they go yeah but my you know whatever my 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 partner or my my wife isn't you know isn't all, as on board when i spend on x for my business right how can people talk about that topic and, and of course, salvage their relationships with their family and all these things, um, but still move forward? Any, any kind of action steps that you might be able to share, Meredith? Mm-hmm. Again, the situation is unique to each couple. And I mean, I could speak uh, to my own situation first, which is that I rely on the good old nonviolent communication and try to keep the emotion out of it, try to, uh, it's taken a lot of practice for me to, you know, my, my husband is not entrepreneurial like me. So sometimes he just does not speak the language, but we've got to this point 30 years into our relationship now where he can, he knows Number one, that if I've made a decision, I'm usually going to go with it. But out of respect, I do like to talk to him about, you know, those those bigger decisions that might affect our finances or something like that. Uh, but again, it's it's the it's about me. It's not about him. And I need to regulate my own emotions. Now, I've practiced that for many, many years after going through our own money crisis and seeing how detrimental my emotions and, and that 
need to control can be. So my advice for other couples, uh, again, it's unique. It's hard to say. Some couples honestly may need to go through counseling if there's some big decisions and people are feeling badly. Uh, that could be a huge help. Uh, I have a friend who's a communications coach and same as me, she recommends the the book Nonviolent Communication. Um, I'm just trying to think of, you know, unique situations that I've had with clients. Basically, I just coach them. We do some some um, role playing, and then we have to see where it goes. And often, very case by case, right? Exactly, exactly. Now, Amber, you were just about to say something. Now, do you do you approach it the same way as well? And of course, this is not just strictly from for like couple to couple. This could be like you know, um, or within couples, but it could even just be within like, uh, you know, oh my goodness, like some someone who's in their late twenties, even going and be like, well, how do I explain to my parents now that I have I want this other to start this other thing, right? Like there are people in our lives who have these opinions, right? And money, business, all of these things. Like, how do you reconcile that uh, from your perspective, Amber? Yeah, so much to say. Uh, you know, I don't think we can separate the conversation from money without talking about shame. Because right? I think part of the reason why we have such a difficult time talking about money is because we don't deal with well, in my experience, talking about shame. And, and it's so... I love Brene Brown's conversations about, you know, like connection and belonging. And and that's all we want as human beings is to connect and belong. And our belief systems, like we're never going to outperform our belief system. So first, like what I would coach anyone is you got to start on the internal. You've got to start with your thoughts. If you want to go have a conversation with people in your life about, I want to start a business or I want to do this ABC, whatever it is, start with like, do you actually like, cause the situation is likely going to go how you think it's going to go. So check in with your own beliefs. Right. And like, if you really believe your parents are going to be great about it or your spouse is going to be great about it, they probably will be. But oftentimes that takes us getting complete with how they were before Right. Because sometimes we build up listings or in our communication, the way we listen to people uh, impacts how we communicate with them going forward. I'll share with my 14 year old. We were like when COVID hit and he was home a lot and I'd be contributing to him. My mind, I'm contributing to him. And I was getting a lot of resistance from him. And and thankfully, he and I've both gone through some personal development courses together. Well, he's gone through them for, for youth and I've been through them for adults. And so we have a language we can speak. And I'd say, like, when I talk to you about your schoolwork or your room, how does that, like, how do you hear that? And he's like, well, like, you're nagging me. And so I said to him, I said, well, I request that you, like, redress your listening because I'm here trying to contribute to you as your mom and guide you. And I'm never going to be able to communicate to you through the filter that I'm nagging you because that's literally how you hear me. So I think it's like starts with our belief system. I love um, the untethered soul, Michael Singer talking about being the observer because we do, we inherit all of these beliefs from our families without even knowing it, like the precious gifts that we hand on from one generation to the next about how life is or how life should be, how we should be, what's acceptable or not. And, And I think when we actually take the time to hold our belief in our hand and be like, huh, does that serve me? 
And do I want to continue believing that, right? Is that going to get me to the next level of what I'm out to accomplish in my life? And I mean, the, the last thing I think I'll say is it's about enrollment, right? You're out to have a conversation with whoever it is, your parents, your spouse, and not, I want to start this business. And this was this great, um, Bob Proctor, I'm in the Thinking Into Results program, about to step into being a consultant for them because I love the mindset work so much that they provide. And he says, you know, when you're talking about selling in business, you sell the na- like the whole, not the drill. So you're not out to talk to your partner that I'm going to go create this business. It's like, what's this business going to provide in our family? Me having, being an entrepreneur, the freedom, like that, that I'll be home for the kids. I'll be able to pick them up. Like, why do you want right? You don't go into the hardware store and say, I want to drill. You go into the hardware store and say, I want to make a hole in my wall and it's the size, right? So you're wanting, you sell the hole. When you're in business, when you're talking to your clients, you're selling them the result that you're going to cause for them, not the tools or the process or the, you know, the program. And I think that's really powerful. And I love that you also tied, you tied that into shame, which I think is interesting because I think a lot of people wouldn't think of that when they talk about, oh, this is a difficult conversation that I'm not comfortable making, right? They don't really look, I think mostly what I derive from what you just said is like, okay, this is a, this is an active process. It's not just a passive, like I have to look into myself and I'm not just projecting something to somebody else, right? Is essentially what it is. It's not a passive, um, you know, process. And I think, a lot of people maybe feel the shame and when it comes to money, they felt that the, there's this guilt where, I, where well, you know, I could have maybe not spend it and then this could go to whatever, you know, the, the ex-family vacation or it could have gone to my rent or whatever it is. And there's almost like this guilt, right, that's built in, like you were saying. And maybe it comes from this, this un, almost like hidden... Uh, understanding that money is the root of evil or whatever, you know, whatever all these money sayings, which is interesting, right? Um, and um, we talk about it being a tool rather than something that has ownership of our life, right? So just kind of flipping, all right, you know what? We are going to take ownership of this. We're going to be in control of it, right? Which is, I think, what both of you guys are, are sharing. Now, talking about taking ownership of our life in the context of money, business, uh, helping other people as well. Uh, Meredith, you have, um, and, you, and you guys brought up kids, so this is, I think, a, a great uh, point to, to share, that Meredith, you have children with disabilities, right? Is that, yes. um, what, uh, what's, uh, can you share a little bit more about that? Absolutely. My, uh, my youngest one is the easiest to explain because she has high functioning autism. So this has been a journey we didn't know until she was seven. So that's almost three and a half years ago. Uh, she's taught us so much. She's a blast. She tells it like it is. Sometimes I wish I had her lack of filter. <laughs> yeah. And then my oldest, who's almost 16, uh, she was diagnosed with OCD a couple of years ago. Um, she has a math disability and uh, a couple of other things. And the OCD uh, stems from being bullied uh, constantly for a number of years through school. So that's a whole, that's a whole other story, but she's thriving. She's just, she's doing so well. And that's because uh, probably because she has a, a solid home that's, and you know, the support, but also she was determined to, to work through that. So we're coming out of some, some tough years and I'm really proud of both of them. 
Yeah. And I think what I love um, about what you had just shared is essentially that, yes, these kids have, you know, their own challenges. And yes, I have to be there for them. But here you are, right, like doing your thing, you have Uh your, your business. And I think, uh, we touched on this a number of times because it seems to strike a chord with a lot of people as well is, um, you know, again, going back to what Amber was saying, the shame and maybe even some of the, you know, unknown guilt that comes from who knows where, right? That we have to be this be all and end, not maybe not be all and end all, but we have to be there 100% for definitely in this case, you know, your kids. But for other mm-hmm. people, I think who may not have kids, they tend to have this this. Uh, contention, right? This kind of pull and push where I love this thing, but I also love this other thing and I don't have time for either, you know, like, so there's this, this constant like walking um, on these two, two things. And then there's like a big white abyss just hanging below you. And you're just kind of like, so how did you, when you discovered it, you said a, a couple of years ago, it sounds like, mm-hmm. did you, um, did you have your business at the time or was that something that comes after? Yeah. So I, about six years ago, I was called to become a money coach. So I, I did that. And it like call, there was this voice as I was reading a book said, you need to do this. So fantastic. That's great. And started building up my coaching business. And then things really got to a point where I was on the verge of breakdown because uh, things were not going well for either of my kids at school or in their lives. So um, I remember the morning looking at my husband saying, I need to quit my job. And he said, yeah, I, I think that would probably be best. And, and knowing that we had, you know, my, my business and, and I think he just saw, you know, what was going on. So I was very lucky that I, I had that going and I knew what I was going to do. Uh, I often think of parents who, you know, are, are in that headspace. Amber mentioned the amygdala, you know, constantly in, in that part of, their brain trying to just cope and not having the people who could support them or lift them up to find the other options or ask for the help they need. Mm, so I, I just hope to inspire people uh, when they, they hear this story. That, yeah. And uh, I think to your point, because, you know, like you, you're sharing your story, like the other people have gone through something similar. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think um, maybe are a few years into it already. You know, Amber, you have like a teenager in your house, which I think is already a feat, you know, doing what you're doing. And I mean, yes, of course they can be independent, but at the same time, it's also a huge uh, change, right? That's something that, He's not actually in my house. So that was a big, big change for us this past summer. So I've been a mom mom since I was 17 and raised my kids, my adult children. And then Keegan's father and I had a conversation in a matter of two weeks, my adult children left home like the fall of 2018. My eldest son went to China for uh, just over a year and my daughter moved to Toronto to, to live with a friend. And I really got the difference between just that abundance of time that you have when your kids live at home versus kind of doing the weekend thing. And Keegan's father and I had broken up when Keegan was two and a half. So he had always lived with me. And I just thought, it's, I, I miss him. It's like, you know, there's ups and downs with it since he moved out in August. Um, but I thought, you know, maybe Patrick would like that opportunity to have that time with Keegan before he grows up. And so I approached him, we had the conversation. And so Keegan's moved in there. He's living there for high school and I'm doing the weekend warrior thing now. So I, I, and it's, it's interesting because uh, I think as entrepreneurs, you know, his father has a kind of more of a nine to five job. 
and as moms, like, I think we have a lot of like that push and pull sometimes because running our own businesses and, and expanding a lot of the things that I'm up to take, take a fair amount of time. And um, I do sleep with his stuffed monkey every night. I miss him like crazy, but every Friday, like we get to live created lives. Yeah. And, and that is such like, I, I am just so grateful and blessed that every day that I get to live a created life. And so Fridays is my day with Keegan. I either go and pick him up for the weekend or I go, I drive to Thorold where he lives near the near Niagara Falls to uh, take him for lunch after school. And so it's interesting as an entre- entrepreneur Friday stopped meaning anything because it was just like, you know, we kind of work. Keep going. Every day yeah. um, in some capacity, right? And so now Fridays is Keegan days and I, I really look forward to Friday mornings. I, I record my podcast interviews and then Friday at noon, I cut off for the day. And, and how great is that, that we get to create our lives and be able to do that. So, but people deal with things in life and it, what's given me such, such uh, confidence and peace is to know that I don't ever have to be at the effect of my circumstances. And, and I've dealt with difficult circumstances. And Meredith, I really feel for you and what you've been through with your family. Like people, we deal with circumstances in life. But when we do the work internally and we give ourselves those tools to be able to deal with, you know, whatever's going on around us, I think it's, um, we, we give ourselves the, the gift of being able to just kind of create ongoingly, not just the results that we want to cause in life, because that's important, but what's the experience that we want to have while getting those results, right? So it's like, okay, I want to earn some money. Well, how do I want to earn that money? What's the service I want to give in exchange for that money? How do I want to contribute to other people? Um, how do I want to spend my time? Yeah, I think this is so important because you do see the difference. And I think this is a great place to, to conclude because you do see the difference between people who've gone far and people who kind of, you know, just finish after a year or two or three even, right? Because you do see that those who have this long, longevity uh, is, is that they they found ways to really love and treasure and, and savor the process uh, and found people who they enjoy to be around during that time. And I think what a be- I think you mentioned gift. I think what a beautiful gift that you can give yourself. I think this is so important as well. Now uh, we are coming to the conclusion of our show, and I'll share all of the information on Amber and Meredith uh, in the show notes. So do go check them out. Some amazing, amazing things that they can share with you. And uh, for that, uh, let's uh, let's wrap up the podcast. Mm-hmm.